Good morning. <laughs> Welcome to our time of gathered worship here as a fellowship community. We are grateful to be together with those of you here in this space, those of you who are joining us online this morning. In this hour together, we are invited to join with believers around the world, the saints who have gone before us, and the angels gathered around the throne of God in the ongoing stream of worship that is happening at all times in all places. Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles. And running with perseverance, the race marked out for us, let us fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross, scorned its shame, and is now sat down at the right hand of the throne of God, where he intercedes for us. Let us come to that throne this morning and let us behold and worship our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Across the beach. 
Friends, I invite you to find a Bible and open it to Psalm 130. We're going to let that guide our prayers this morning, and we'll conclude our prayer time with the Lord's Prayer spoken together. Let's pray together. O Lord, our God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, today we turn to you in gratitude for the book of Psalms, the prayer book of the church, and we give you thanks that in it, we can find the very language of our hearts. When our own words fail, we find the Psalms to be trustworthy and true and honest. And so now we turn to you in the words of Psalm 130. Out of the depths, I cry to you, O Lord. Hear my voice. Let your ear be attentive to my cry for mercy. The psalmist gets right to it. And so now do we as well, speaking from a deep place. Out of the depths, O Lord, out of the depths of trouble at home, out of the depths of controversies and tragedies in our world, out of the depths of our grief for good things now gone, out of the depths of the shadows in our own hearts, out of the depths of sin that so easily entangles us and out of the depths of a spiritual numbness that we cannot shake. Out of the depths we cry out to you, O Lord, please be attentive to our cry for mercy. The psalmist offers a question that is an honest one. If you, O Lord, kept a record of sins, Lord, who could stand? If you, O oh Lord, kept a record of sins and shared it, then all of our fumblings, all of our failings, all of our secret wandering, these things would be no secret at all. If you, O oh Lord, kept a record of sins and shared it, then all of us would be without excuse, equally guilty in a million different ways. If you, O oh Lord, kept a record of sins and shared it, then this would indeed be a graceless world. If you, O Lord, kept a record of sins and shared it, who could stand? No one could stand. Only Christ could stand. And Christ has stood. He did stand. He still stands. And so with the psalmist, we now say, even celebrating that with you, O Lord, there is forgiveness no matter how great our debt with you, O Lord, there is forgiveness. No matter what we've done with you, O Lord, there is forgiveness. And no matter what we've left undone with you, O Lord, there is forgiveness. And all of this is so that, says the psalmist, so that we can, with reverence, serve you, O God. It is not so that we can go out and do it all over again. It is not so that we can live foolishly because we are forgiven. It is not so that we can say thanks and forget about you. It is so that, with reverence, we can serve you, O God. Therefore, with the psalmist, and especially in hard times, in these times, we choose to wait for you. Our whole being waits for you, and in your word, O Lord, in your word in print, the Bible, and in your word made flesh, Jesus, 
in your word we put our hope. More than watchmen wait for the morning, more than watchmen wait for the morning, we wait for you, O God, and we hope. For as the psalmist has said, with you, O Lord, there is unfailing love. And with you, O Lord, there is full redemption. Therefore, with your whole church on earth and with all the company of heaven, we join in saying salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and unto the Lamb. Salvation belongs to the Lord and to the Lamb who was slain on our behalf. Yes, salvation belongs to the Lamb of God who came to take away the sin of the world. If you, O Lord, kept a record of sins, who could stand? But hallelujah, yes and amen, because you don't. In Jesus Christ, you have done just as you promised. You have redeemed all of us from all our sin. And so in gratitude, we join our voices together to pray the prayer that Jesus taught his disciples to pray, saying together, with the words on the screen. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. Lead us not in temptation, but deliver us from evil. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen. Friends, let's stand together and sing all hail the power of Jesus' name.
and brothers in Christ, it is because of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus that we have peace with God and with one another. The peace of Christ be with you. I invite you to share a sign of that peace with your neighbor and those of you online to greet each other in the chat. Well, good morning, Fellowship Church. How cool is it to have the choir and, yeah, yeah, woohoo for the choir, and to have Jess Mix back after a couple weeks of vacation. What a joy it is to worship together uh, in our full uh, musical accord. I feel like I have a thing hanging right here, and I do. Uh, anyway, uh, my name is Nate Skipper, and I'm one of the pastors here at Fellowship Church, where our mission is to love God and others as an accepting community centered in Christ, focused on developing faithful followers of Jesus. If you are new or if you're visiting with us this morning, we're, we're really glad you're here. Welcome, uh, whether you're worshiping in person or online with us this morning. If you'd like to fill out one of the connection cards, that's a great way for us to get to know you uh, and maybe make a contact with you uh, in the near future. This morning, we have an opportunity to celebrate a couple of things. Uh, the first thing that we get to celebrate is some of the members of Fellowship Church who we've uh, been getting to know and working with for the last 10 years, I found out after the first service. Uh, the Marimbe family, they uh, arrived here as refugees from Congo uh, and adjusted uh, to American life uh, from a new continent they have learned a new language. They, uh, Justine has raised kids and is getting them through school. She's found a job recently and has been working at Heinz for a number of years. And this morning, we get to celebrate a significant milestone in that she is becoming a homeowner. Come on! Uh, which is awesome. Uh, so this afternoon, yes. Uh, this afternoon, if you'd like to join us in dedicating her house uh, uh, that she, in partnership with uh, Habitat for Humanity, it's uh, at 1 o'clock this afternoon at, um, on the south side of town. Uh, you can, I can help you with the address if you need one, but we'd love to have you join us uh, in celebrating and dedicating that home to her. The second celebration uh, that is a little bit bittersweet, at least for me personally, and I think for Fellowship Church as well, uh, is the celebration uh, of retirement uh, of Kathy Hamilton, who has served as our care coordinator for the last three years. I'd like to invite Kathy up. Yes. If you know Kathy Hamilton, you know gratitude and joy embodied. Uh, she is one of those unique people that make everyone else around her a better person uh, because of her gratitude to God for what he has done in the past in her life and her hope uh, and joy uh, in God's good and beautiful future. Uh, and so we, uh, on behalf of Fellowship Church, Kathy, are so grateful to have had the opportunity to work with you. 
one of the things that I love most about Kathy is that, yes, she is a loving and caring and organized person and worker, but that isn't something that she does out of duty or obligation. That is who Kathy Hamilton is. Uh, and so the beauty of this uh, fit for us the last couple of years has been uh, this is just an expression of the gifts that I believe that God has uniquely blessed you with, uh, Kathy. And so we are so grateful uh, for the chance that we have had to work together and uh, in partnership with the ministry that God's doing here at Fellowship Church. So thank you for being a great part of the Fellowship Team staff. Thank you. I am absolutely overwhelmed with gratitude for the privilege of having served as your care coordinator these last three years. And um, I could really go on and on, but I'm just gonna keep it short um, and quote Paul when he was addressing the Thessalonians. And he said, I love you so much that I have been delighted to share with you not only the gospel of God, but our very lives because you all have become so dear to me. Thank you. Hmm. Mm. Kathy, we, amen. We are so grateful to you and uh, to your family for sharing with you. The, a lot of Kathy's friend, uh, kids are here this morning to celebrate with her because this is, uh, yes, uh, a leaving of the fellowship staff, but also an, uh, entering into a new chapter of retirement. Uh, and she gets to do that uh, and be a grandparent to you guys a little bit more, and then also uh, to jump into this next chapter with her husband, Mike. And as an expression of our gratitude to you, we have uh, a gift, wow. uh, which is a cool present, uh, because I know that you like uh, gardening, and it's a crocosmia, but this isn't any, any crocosmia, it is an orange peacock, which, according to Yonkers Garden, is a unique plant, because it's usually red, and these are bright orange. I said I wanted a bright flower, I wanted something that can be planted in the sun, and uh, I wanted to, uh, what was my third thing? I keep forgetting the third thing. Bright, plant in the sun, what's it? and unique. Yes, thank you. That's the orange part was the unique part because uh, Kathy is a unique and an individual uh, gift from God to Fellowship Church. You also bring a lot of brightness to the people you are and you love the sunny spots, uh, not only in light of the sun up there, but also the sun that we worship this morning. So thank you for your great service to Fellowship. And as a part of uh, our gifts, and we'll set these down, this is another part of your gift, but we'll put this over here. I won't make you hold it while you uh, do this next part. Uh, Pat Vorpagel, uh, who is here this morning, you can come on up, Pat, uh, is our new uh, care coordinator. And in uh, similar Kathy fashion, she's like, I don't want to celebrate me too much. I want to uh, bless other people, uh, which is what she's been doing for the last number of years, and she will continue to do. Uh, but she wanted to uh, recognize and say thank you, God, for Pat, uh, and also bless her as she enters into uh, this new role as care coordinator. So, uh, Kathy, would you mind, as you requested, actually, uh, to offer a prayer for Pat as she enters into this new chapter, and then I will pray for both of you. Perfect. Let's pray. Pray with me, please. God, we thank you for Pat. Thank you for the deep gifts that you have given her, along with education and experience to um, bring to this new role. And thank you for guiding her to say yes to this call on her life. 
we pray, God, that you would give Pat everything she needs as she steps into this new call as our care coordinator. Give her passion for her work and compassion for the people she ministers to. Give her endurance and wisdom. And most of all, God, give her joy in this calling. We ask all of this, Jesus, in your mighty name. Amen. And God, I thank you for Kathy and for Pat and for the unique ways in which you have gifted both of them and for their willingness to use those gifts uh, to further your kingdom and to love and care for your people uh, here at Fellowship Church and in the greater community. May you be with each of them as they enter into these new roles and may your uh, love and grace permeate not just who they are but the people that they get to interact with. In Christ's name, amen. amen. Thank you, Kathy. As a way to bless Kathy uh, in her retirement and also Pat in her new role and all of us as we use the gifts that God has given us and namely our children who are going to be dismissed three through first grade during this song, we'll sing this song of blessing to one another. Join us. you pray with me? Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we are so grateful for this day, for the ability to gather, to worship you, for the turning and changing of seasons, for a creation that you continue to sustain, and for all of your incredible work in our lives and in our hearts. Thank you, Father, for pursuing us Son of God for redeeming us, Spirit of God for transforming us. As we continue to worship this morning, as we turn toward the scriptures, open our hearts and open our minds and help us to hear your truth, hear your voice, um, and see your face more clearly. In the name of Jesus Christ, we all pray. Amen. Hear the word of the Lord from Revelation 
chapter 5, picking up in verse 1. Then I saw in the right hand of him who was seated on the throne a scroll written within and on the back, sealed with seven seals. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming with a loud voice, who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? And no one in heaven and on the earth and under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look into it. And I began to weep loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or to look into it. And one of the elders said to me, weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. And between the throne and the four living creatures among the elders, I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain with seven horns and with seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. And he went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. And when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb, each holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song saying, worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals for you were slain and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So today's question, who is worthy, comes to us from the book of Revelation. Now I know what you're thinking. Things in our world must be pretty bleak if we're opening the book of Revelation. (laughs) As I worked on this sermon over the weekend in one of my favorite neighborhood coffee shops in Grand Rapids, I couldn't help but notice that no one sat near me There's something about the stack of books labeled Revelation that did not scream approach. Uh, (laughs) uh, So in all seriousness, Revelation is a book that is often avoided and sidestepped. Um, Even the very fearless and outspoken second generation reformer John Calvin uh, wrote commentaries on every book of the scriptures except Revelation. Fast forward to our own time, one of my favorite reformed commentaries just skips Revelation altogether. What accounts for this? Well, if you've ever read Revelation, or even if you've heard of Revelation, you probably know that the imagery and symbolism in the book are rather striking, rather striking. Uh, (laughs) uh, So Revelation is considered apocalyptic literature. Uh, And usually when people think apocalypse, they uh, they think end of the world. People tend to think end of the world. And Hollywood sort of plays in our imaginations with movies that get released. Uh, Who can forget Armageddon, uh, starring Bruce Willis, uh, one of my favorites from a long time ago. Uh, (laughs) Or um, after that, Book of Eli, starring Denzel Washington. I've not seen this movie, but I heard it's pretty great. Uh, And then uh, who could forget the Left Behind book series, always available in a church basement near you. And then there's the trilogy. (laughs) And there's the trilogy, the movie series as well, uh, starring Kurt Cameron. God love Kurt Cameron. Uh, So the book of Revelation tends to take center stage uh, in the apocalyptic imagination. And there's good reason for that. Um, And if we're not careful, readers of all of the scriptures, but particularly Revelation as apocalyptic literature, we can go astray. Some of you are old enough to, or sorry, mature enough to remember this. Uh, Back in the 90s, a cult leader, David Koresh, together with over 100 followers, engaged in a standoff with the FBI that ended, ended quite tragically. 
It seems that David Koresh looked at our text for the day, heard the question in the text, who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals, and he concluded, I am, because I am the Messiah. I am the Lamb. I am the one who is worthy to open the scroll. I am the one who's worthy to break its seals. Apparently, a little misapplication of scripture and an impressively large ego can become very destructive for us. So what might anchor us as we move through a text like Revelation today? Well, as it turns out, there's some really brilliant men and women who have been studying this text for years and studying the land of the text for years. And in doing so, they've gone before us by learning some things that will help anchor us in today's text. So four quick little anchor points that kind of help us move through our text. The first being who. First anchor point, who. Um, Revelation is a book. It's essentially a letter written by John. John is the writer of Revelation. It says so right in Revelation um, chapter 1, verse 9. Uh, now, there's some really smart people who argue about whether this is the John who is the writer of the, one of the apostles, the writer of the Gospel of John, the writer of the first or the three epistles of John. Uh, and there's also some really smart people who disagree and they say, actually, this is John the prophet or this is John the seer. In any case, you can kind of hold that in suspense for a second because the really important detail to get is that this John is or has some level of responsibility for the seven churches in Asia Minor. In fact, all of Revelation, not just the, the snippets in um, Revelation chapter 2 and Revelation chapter 3, but all of Revelation as a book is written specifically to the seven churches of Asia Minor that are named uh, in Revelation chapter 1, Ephesus, Smyrna, uh, Pergamum, the uh, Theatira, Sardis. Philadelphia, and Laodicea. Now, I know what you're thinking. Why write a letter if he knows them personally? If he, if he is friends with them, if he knows these people really well, why send an email when you can just peek into their office? Why, why reach out to them via text when you could just scream across the lobby to them? Uh, in fact, it turns out because John is on the remote, obscure island of Patmos, Patmos is one of a bunch of tiny islands that's off the coast of Asia Minor. It sits in the Aegean Sea. You can see it there on the map. It's labeled. It sits in the Aegean Sea. Uh, so not too far from the seven churches of, 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 of um, Asia Minor, but definitely enough of a distance away that he would have to send a letter. Now, when I was growing up, I heard a lot of things about the book of Revelation, but one of the things that I heard was that Patmos is kind of like Alcatraz. Like, there's nothing there. No one lives there. Poor John is like there by himself. They took his sandals, and so he's like walking on glass. That's actually not quite how it was. Uh, so apparently, while Patmos was not a bustling city, people did live there. Uh, Patmos was a fortress island, as in the military did have a huge presence there because they were protecting nearby harbors. Uh, they were protecting those harbors so the goods could kind of come in and leave. They also excavated a temple to Artemis um, on one of the highest points of Patmos. Uh, and they've recently discovered a gymnasium that dates back to the second century. A gymnasium was not only a place where you worked out, but it was also a place where you learned Greco-Roman culture. Uh, so there's a huge, just kind of a bustling, um, um, militaristic, religious, and even cultural scene. Not a huge city. Still, the terrain is rocky. The terrain is kind of arid. Uh, there's few natural resources. If you didn't grow up there, you probably wouldn't want to get sent there. It was kind of like... Ohio, like you don't want to be banished there. There's <laughs> definitely no Chick-fil-A there. Uh, so that is precisely the predicament John finds himself in. He's been exiled to Patmos, um, and he says, on account of his testimony about the risen Christ. 
He's been sent away from the churches, away from these very strategically located churches in these strategically located cities into the land of Patmos or the island of Patmos. And in fact, suffering, endurance, martyrdom, these are central themes in the book of Revelation. We see this very early on in chapter two of Revelation. I'm not gonna read these passages, but they're there for your reference. Revelation chapter two, uh, Revelation chapter two, again, a little bit further down, um, economic persecution. Uh, Revelation chapter three, uh, we see this theme come up again. Um, also, Revelation 7, it just kind of continues on. There's this theme of martyrdom and suffering and endurance within the text. And it actually brings us to our third anchor point. When? When was the text of Revelation written? Um, what, is, what is there to tell us about the timing of the text? Uh, so we tend to think of Revelation as future telling, as though it were written during a time about things that would happen hundreds of years, thousands of years later. Um, but the writer of Revelation tells us that he's writing about things that must soon take place. Things that must soon take place for the time. It's not distant. The time is not somewhere thousands of years in the future. The time is near. The time is near. That's right in Revelation verses one through three, the first chapter. And so if we trust John, we realize that Revelation is not a coded message or a cryptic message about the end of the world that we need to be smart enough to decode. Rather, it is about the end of the world as they know it. The end of the world as they know it. Uh, so the persecution and suffering alluded to in Revelation helps us to know that it was written somewhere between the 60s and the 90s AD. Uh, so there's about a 30-year span, but there's a lot happening in that 30-year span, and that's what makes it kind of difficult to pin down like an exact year of when it happened. Uh, but history records a few things that help us to get a better sense of John's world during this time. Uh, three things. First, Nero's brutal persecution of Jews and Christians began in all, like, literally almost as soon as he takes office as emperor in 54 AD, and it continues for years, um, almost actually until the time that he is removed from office in 68 um, AD. So Nero's brutal, per brutal persecution of Jews and Christians. The second thing, the ramping up of emperor worship. A ramping up of emperor worship beginning during Nero's reign, continuing into the reign of Domitian and then other folks all into the second century. Second century numbers. <laughs> second century. Uh, so imperial temples being built um, actually in two of the seven cities that John names in the book of Revelation, uh, Pergamum and Smyrna. Uh, during the time of Nero, eventually a third city, um, Ephesus, receives an imperial temple. Uh, when we talk about imperial worship, we think about it from the vantage point of Christians, and we think, why on earth would anyone want to do that? Why would someone worship the emperor? But think about it from the vantage point of being a Roman citizen um, in the first um, and second century. Uh, this was the most peaceful time for many of the people who lived in Rome of their entire existence. Um, so what you got, you've heard this Pax Romana, the peace of Rome. People are experiencing unprecedented peace and prosperity. Um, culture is, I mean, literally just thriving. I mean, they're building theaters all over the place, bathhouses all over the place, gymnasiums, there's sporting events, the Olympics. I mean, all these things are kind of cropping up during this time. So people are not just simply being forced to burn a pinch of incense to the emperor, they are glad to. They are glad to because there's money in their bank accounts, there's all types of movies on their DVR, and also they're protected by the most incredible elite military on the planet at the time. 
So emperor worship is something that is not just forced from the city officials, but also the culture itself kind of looks at you like, why wouldn't you be grateful to our emperors for the peace that they have delivered to us? So emperor worship is the third thing, third thing, or second thing, third thing, increasing Jewish extremism that eventually becomes a full-on revolt, full-on revolt um, in the 60s that eventually culminates in the destruction of the temple, the destruction of the temple, uh, the one that Herod himself restored beautifully, the destruction of the temple in 70 AD by the Romans. Uh, The combination of all three of these things, the, the persecution, the constant pressure to worship the emperor, and the temple's destruction left God's people devastated and absolutely bewildered and wondering, questioning whether God's plan to redeem the world through Christ had actually bottomed out, had maybe stalled, had maybe been halted indefinitely by imperial power and the absence of a glorious temple within which God's presence would dwell among them. Which brings me to the fourth and final anchor point, the why. Why is Revelation written? Well, it says so right in the very first three words of Revelation. Very first three words of Revelation, Revelation of Jesus Christ. Revelation, apocalypsis, Yesu, Christu. Those are the first three words of Revelation. They tell us what the entire book is all about. Repeat after me, apocalypsis. It is two Greek words smashed together, apa, which means from or out of, it's a preposition, um, and then calypso or calypte or some other Greek thing that Bryce at this point probably knows better than me because he studied Greek recently. <laughs> so, uh, so that word means a hide or uh, to cover or to conceal something, maybe to veil something. But when you put those two words together, the literal translation is to bring something out of hiding to bring something out of concealment, as in um, to, yeah, to bring something out of, of being blanketed or hidden from the people. So Tim Mackey, a public Bible scholar, said something interesting on a podcast I was listening to actually on Revelation uh, several months back. And as he talked through how best to read the book of Revelation, he agrees that um, apocalypse wasn't so much about predicting the future or predicting the end of the world. Rather, an apocalypse is designed to help you to go back to your life, but with a bigger perspective um, and and a handle on a bigger story, reminding you that there's this whole realm of activity that is happening um, that's hard for you to see, though it's overlapping with what you, exceed, what you are seeing and experiencing. To apocalypse, using it as a verb, Mackie says, is to reveal a bigger reality than the one that I am seeing right in front of me. So what is the bigger reality that John wants to make known to the seven churches? It's simple. Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is the revelation that John wants to make known. And might that be a relevant question for us um, and for the church in all times and places? The question of who exactly is Jesus Christ and what is his kingdom like when life gets interrupted or when things are falling apart or when life's life's difficulties seem to be bearing down on us or when we look around and all we see is chaos and carnage. Who is Jesus Christ when despite the inauguration of Christ's coming kingdom in all of its glory, when we look around, it seems that sin and death and evil are winning. This is the question at the heart of the book of Revelation. And this is the question that enlivens our text for today. 
And this is the question that animates John's own writing. John writing to a set of churches in Asia Minor in the late part of the first century, um, looking at the events that are unfolding around him and all of his friends and the churches that they belong to, and eventually prayerfully discovering, at the feet of God, prayerfully discovering who Jesus is in a whole new way, more of who Jesus is, and what he's doing amidst the chaos of his own world, and dare I say, even the chaos in our world So as we enter into the fifth chapter of Revelation, we find ourselves in the middle of a scene. Something is already taking place. uh, And when we back up just a little tiny bit to Revelation 4, we realize that John is actually beholding the throne of God, the very throne of God. And seated on the throne of God is not the emperor. It's not um, it's not Nero, it's not Domitian, it's not, it's not Trajan, it's not Hadrian, it is not the emperor, but rather the God of the entire cosmos. And around the throne of God, the living creatures, the angels, the elders, all proclaim the glory of God. Day and night, the choir of heaven proclaims the glorious kingship of our God. But there's a discrepancy between what the heavens proclaim and what is taking place on earth. That is what we step into at the very beginning of chapter five. But John notices something. Next to the one seated on the throne, next to God Almighty on the throne, is a scroll that has been sealed with seven seals. And John sees that it's a pretty hefty document. It's double-sided because God cares about saving paper. And on the scroll, (laughs) you gotta wonder, what is on the scroll? Like, what's in the document? What does it say? And there's been a lot of speculation as to what that scroll says. Um, But first century legal documents, like wills and testaments, kind of give us some clue as to what this document says, but not just what it says specifically what it does. Uh, So legal wills and testaments um, are often sealed with a bunch of seals um, during the first century. Now, each of these seals was kind of like the mark of a witness. It was a person testifying that the contents were authentic, that they really did come from the person that they said they were coming from, um, and they really were addressed to the person that they say that they're addressed to. Um, And any guesses as to how many seals might be on a document like this? Yeah, like seven or like five or six or seven. It kind of depends on the number of witnesses, but but usually the more witnesses, the better. Um, so in this testament was kind of something like a um, like a plan. Um, like if you if you've been an executor of someone's estate before, like that is a plan that is handed to the person who is the executor. That person plays the role of like a mediator. This is the person who enacts the plan, has the authority to enact the plan, is addressed as the specific person who enacts the plan. So in this document is something like a plan uh, that is the, the, the will of the person who is writing the testament. So what's on the scroll? Again, lots of speculation, but given the persecution in the backdrop, N.T. Wright, um, New Testament scholar, British, so he's right, um, at least he sounds right. <laughs> uh, he says that that scroll is actually something like, um, like a blueprint. Like think of God as an architect and there's a blueprint. Uh, or think of God like a general and there's a plan for a military camp- campaign. Uh, that plan possesses the, the, the directions for undoing the sin, the brokenness, and the evil of our world and replacing it, uh, restoring our world so that creation goes back on track. So as the cataclysmic events of the first, uh, the late first century unfold, John has a message of reassurance for his parishioners that in the very hand of God, there is a scroll and that on that scroll is a very detailed, remember, double-sided, very detailed plan for how he will bring about his kingdom on earth as it is in heaven. 
Now, when I say there is a plan, here's what I mean by that. Um, we have to be really precise in the way that we talk about plans and evil and suffering because that actually can be the reason that a person doesn't um, trust in Jesus. Um, God is not dealing in death. God is not dealing in the destruction of humanity. God is not dealing in evil and suffering. That plan, as mysterious as it is in a book like Revelation, is a plan for how God redeems creation, for how God restores creation, for how God steps into the mess of this world and says no to evil, no to sin, no to darkness, and yes to flourishing of creation and humanity in fellowship with him. And so that plan, again, as mysterious as it is, is a plan to do exactly what God always does, which is bring beauty from ashes, birth something new from the carnage, a plan to redeem the tragedy. Even the tragedy that is the destruction of the temple, out of that gets birth, literally a church on fire for God that converts people all over the Roman Empire, despite the persecution. But a question is pronounced in heaven, specifically a mighty angel. The text wants us to know that the angel is very strong. The angel works out, bench presses, like your body weight, like very strong angel. Um, and that mighty angel asks, who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? Who is strong enough to carry out this plan? Who has the capacity to enact God's plan to overthrow sin, death, and darkness? Who is worthy to carry out God's plan? This is a very clear call for a hero in our text. And the hero has to be a human being. Why? Because a quick survey of both the scriptures and human history tells us that God has always used human beings to bring about human flourishing, creation's flourishing, and even his redemptive plan. For instance, God used Abraham and Sarah to make a people set apart for his purposes in creation. God used ordinary midwives, Shifra and Pua, to prevent the murder of the children of Egypt. God used Moses, whose life they saved. God used Moses to rescue his people from slavery in Egypt. God used the prophet, or the judge Deborah, to proclaim God's truth, um, God's judgment to the people of Israel, and to direct Barak, the general, in battle. God used David, the mighty warrior king of Judah, to expand the borders of the land of Israel and to establish peace and security within its walls. God used Solomon, his son, to build the first temple in which God's presence dwelt among the people. You get where I'm going with this. God uses people. God uses people because people sit at the nexus. They sit at the in-between place between heaven and earth. We have a soul that allows us to commune with God. We're made of matter. We are creatures of the earth. We sit in the place in between. We have always been meant to be mediators of God's goodness, beauty, and truth in creation. Hence the task given to humanity to tend and order and care for creation to bring it to its ultimate fulfillment in Genesis chapter 1. And even within a broken, fallen creation, we recognize, probably more so, the imperative to be people who do the right thing, to stand up for justice, to fight for freedom. This is why we tell stories about heroes to our children, because we want them to do the same thing and to be those kinds of people. It's the reason why we pack out box offices to see movies like Top Gun Maverick, or movies like Aladdin, or um, The Lion King with Mufasa and Simba, or adorable Cindy Lou Who. We really want people to be like Cindy Lou Who, just joy in the world. Or Wonder Woman. Or Thor. Or America's favorite hero, John McClane. <laughs> Maybe my favorite hero. <laughs> 
But John, the John of the text, not John McClain, John stumbles into a terrible discovery. He realizes that there is no one in heaven or on earth or even under the earth who is able to open the scroll, and it fills his heart with deep dread and disappointment. He begins to weep loudly. The sobs of his disappointment just echo across the heavens. And that disappointment is pretty familiar to us too. Because for those of us who know what life outside of blockbuster feature films is like, recognize that heroes are often complicated and frail and broken. We're all familiar with the story of the founding father animated by the ideals of freedom for human beings who ironically owned slaves. Or the story about the civil rights leader who led one of the greatest movements of the 20th century who repeatedly broke his vows. Or the one about maybe the megachurch pastor who left a trail of scandal and brokenhearted parishioners and a distraught family in his wake. Or the one about the talk show host renowned for her generosity and kindness who secretly bullied her staff. Or the one about the Christian apologist who abused the women closest to him. Or maybe the one about the parent or the teacher or the coach in your own life who let you down. In real life, the people who have the gumption to step up are often the ones who let us down. And they're in familiar company with the greats of scripture. Sarah not only offered her female slave to her husband to impregnate, but then oppressed her after she gave birth. And David, the great, mighty warrior king of Judah, had an affair and then murdered the husband of the woman he slept with. And then years later sat silently after one of his sons assaulted one of his own daughters, never holding him accountable. And the great Solomon, the builder of the temple of God, in which the, the, the spirit of God dwelt for the first time amongst the people, became an idolater. N.T. Wright reflects the haunting, haunting question before us today. Is there anyone out there who deserves to open this scroll? Is there anybody out there who has not themselves contributed in some way to the problems of creation? When even our heroes let us down, is there anyone who is worthy to open the scroll? And the answer is a resounding yes. The powerful, mighty lion of Judah, the elder says to John, the, or, yeah, to John, the root of David, the Christ has conquered sin, death, and evil. He is powerful enough to carry out God's redemptive purposes for creation. He is the only one who has not contributed to those problems. And so hearing of the Lion of Judah, who can set things right finally, John begins to dry his eyes. And when he does, what he sees in front of him is a lamb that has been slain. The discrepancy between what, God, what John hears, the Lion of Judah, and what he sees, a slain lamb, could almost be missed if you're not paying attention. But the reversal is astounding. See, ordinarily in imperial culture, the emperor conquered through military force. This was how a ruler legitimated their power and garnered the adoration of his or her subjects, usually his subjects. But the lion of Judah, the lion of Judah, the lamb that was slain, conquers not by waging violence on creation or even on us as humans, but by being slain to save it. The reversal is astounding. And just as the people of the earthly kingdoms sing the praises of the ruler who conquers through militaristic might, the creatures of heaven 
sing the praises of the lion who conquers by being slain as a lamb. As the temple burns in the backdrop, Jerusalem has fallen, is on the headlines of the newspapers of the day, as economic and violent persecution ramps up for decades, not to be abated until the third or the second, the third century, fourth century, fourth century, <laughs> numbers again. Uh, the reversal is astounding because John says to God's people, you shall reign. In the midst of all of this, you shall reign. Now, what's puzzling about that is that he doesn't actually call them rulers. In the text, he calls them what? Priests. He calls them priests. How do you rule as a priest? What exactly is a priest? A priest is an intercessor, an intercessor, a person who stands between. Priests are mediators of God's grace and mercy. Priests are instantiations, they're instances, they are signposts of God's coming kingdom. And how do priests rule? Through liturgical faithfulness. Now, I know liturgical faithfulness sounds like something that only Jess is responsible for, or maybe Jess and the choir and the worship teams that come up here. But in fact, John says to all of God's people, you will rule through liturgical faithfulness by doggedly insisting on singing a new song. When everyone else is obsessed with the old songs, you are the people who insist on singing a new song. When the people in our lives ask us to explain the hope that we have, will we sing the old songs of our competing imperial cults, of, of political parties and platforms, of cynicism and despair, the old songs of the end of the world, or will we sing the song about Christ being God's answer to sin, death, and evil that wreaks havoc in creation? Or will we sing the new song about the God who brings beauty from the ashes, even within our own lives? Will we sing the song of the slain lamb that was mighty enough to redeem us, but gentle enough to transform us without breaking us? Will we sing the song about the God who changed our lives and the trajectory of our lives for all eternity and wants to change theirs too? I think our world needs us to hum a different tune one that echoes the character of God, one that echoes the heart of God, one that echoes the people of God that we're called to be. I recently had a chance to talk to a friend about um, his own faith journey. He's not a practicing Christian, but grew up Presbyterian. And um, somehow the conversation over ice cream fell to why he wasn't a believer, like why he'd walked away from the church, why he wasn't a part of the church right now. And he said, you know, honestly, it's, decades of division in the church and the political fighting and the infighting. And it actually gave me a chance to talk a little bit about this church, um, this church and the mission of this church um, as a group of people who are centered in Christ, um, a group of people who are willing to um, hold their faith tightly, but hold their politics loosely. Um, And it didn't produce this, it wasn't a come to Jesus moment at like the Dairy Queen. What it was though was a, huh, That's refreshing. That's what a new song sounds like, refreshing. That's what witness looks like in a politically charged age, refreshing. We get to be people who sing a new song, one that winsomely invites others to sing the song of the lamb that was slain for them. And in doing so, maybe, maybe we live up to this title of priests, this title of priests who help others discover the slain lamb that we love and adore and sing ecstatically to. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we are so grateful, so very grateful that when you surveyed creation, you did not leave it 
We are so grateful that you have said no to the powers of sin and death and evil, and that your no is shown to us in Jesus Christ, who comes to redeem us, who comes to ransom us, who comes to set us free so that we can sing your praises. We are grateful for the transformation that we have, for the changed lives that we get to live, for the beauty, truth, and goodness that we get to experience even in the midst of some of life's hardest tragedies. And ultimately, Lord, we are grateful that we get to be priests in your creation, empowered to serve others and intercede for others and help others discover you. In the name of Jesus Christ, we lift up all these things. Amen. No clap, no clap, no clap, no clap. I invite you to stand and let's sing together.
tiny, tiny announcement. Uh, we are still celebrating Kathy, um, Kathy's retirement, and also Pat's joining of us. So the two of them will be in the atrium. There's cake. It's very good cake, I hear. Um, and there's fruit if you're on a diet. So out in the lobby after service. <laughs> um, and so one final blessing for us this afternoon. Brothers and sisters in Christ, may the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. Amen. Go in peace. Mm -hmm.